In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I'm Don Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across the front lines, including how Putin has reportedly sent revenge squads into Crimea. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 28th of December, one year and 307 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and chemical warfare expert and former tank commander Hamish de Breton-Gordon. And later... We hear from Ukrainian activist and campaigner Yulia Tymoshenko, who shares her own family stories of the Holodomor. I started with the updates. Vladimir Putin has reportedly sent revenge squads into occupied Crimea to hunt down locals who gave Ukraine the location of the Novichokask uh, landing ship. This is according to uh, partisans. So the Atesh resistance group set up in 2022 um, said that civilians' houses have been raided and mobile phones seized as what they're describing as completely furious Putin unleashed the flywheel of repression. That sounds like the bad next Indiana Jones movie, but I guess that's a bad thing. Now, you'll remember, so this comes from Tuesday, British Storm Shadow or French Scalp missile, cruise missiles, effectively the same thing, totally destroyed uh, this landing ship and its cargo of explosives on Tuesday. So Atash said in a statement, an order was issued to punish the Crimean Air Defence Forces. It is expected that many commanders will be removed and sent to the front to participate in assault groups. Now, staying in the Black Sea, today's British MOD update says that the Novichokask was completely destroyed, not merely damaged, as the Kremlin asserted. Satellite imagery that you can find online shows a complete mess and a black outline of what used to be the ship, plus extensive damage to the port facilities there in the southeast corner of Crimea. Uh, MOD cites open source evidence suggesting what they're calling LST, the, the correct terminology for that ship, landing ship tank, as it's known. It's basically a landing craft that's able to go right up to the shore and disembark people and vehicles directly onto the shore. So an LST is the correct form for this, uh, this type of ship. But they're saying it was highly likely carrying explosive cargo when it was hit, causing a large secondary explosion that we all saw. Now, the incident uh, takes the number of these, of these craft that Russia has lost since the invasion to three. The Saratov was sunk on the 24th of March last year. The Minsk was functionally destroyed, according to MOD, in dry dock on the 13th of September this year. And two additional LSTs, these landing craft, have uh, likely been damaged. We think they've got about a dozen 
Um, so, you know, they're coming up for 50, 50% attritional rate, which is not good in anyone's, uh, anyone's book. Well, if you're Russian, that is. Russia likely planned, this British MOD saying, their Defence Intelligence Department saying, Russia likely planned to use this force to launch significant amphibious assaults during the invasion last year. And it did double the number of these vessels in the Black Sea in the build-up to the war. We've not seen those uh, any amphibious landings, unlikely to now, given the, um, given the threat from Ukrainian Neptune missiles and others. As the war is now in, about to enter its third year, these ships have more commonly been employed on logistical support uh, rather than their primary role of amphibious assault. Um, that is, uh, I mean, logistic support is important. As MOD say, it augments the vital and relatively fragile road and rail connection of the Crimea Bridge linking Crimea to Russia. Now then, on the land, there have been minimal changes in positions in the last, uh, last 24 hours. Most of the gains, the numerical gains, have been made by Russia. I say that so it's clear that there's fighting still going on on the land, despite it being uh, winter. But I've got to say the gains on both sides are, are absolutely tiny, um, virtually non-existent. We're talking tree lines or a few, a few metres, um, but uh, it, is, it is still going on. Next one, drone footage published yesterday shows what's allegedly a Russian execution of Ukrainian prisoners of war near Robertain in western Zaporizhia Oblast. ISW, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, have got footage on their social media site and on their website. They've previously reported using or observing drone footage of, of Russian servicemen using Ukrainian POWs, prisoners of war, as human shields. They put this up on December the 13th in the same area. So it looks like there's the latest documented war crimes. Also this morning, a container ship struck a mine in the Black Sea. Uh, Ukraine's armed forces says it's a Russian mine. Uh, we can't verify that. It it may may well be. It could be mines that broke their moorings if they are free floating mines from that uh, that terrible storm a couple of weeks ago. This was a Panama flagged general cargo ship that hit a mine about 100 miles southwest of Odessa, whilst en route to Ismail on the Danube River. Um, according to Ambre, which is a, a global maritime risk management company that I, I look at, the sea mine hit the vessel's stern and detonated. This caused equipment and machinery failure, resulting in the vessel losing power. The captain managed to manoeuvre the vessel into shallow water to prevent it from sinking. There were 18 crew members on board at the time, 13 Egyptians, three Ukrainians, two Turkish. Uh, the cook uh, received head injury, required hospitalisation. Other crew members suffered minor injuries. Local search and rescue assets responded at the time. The vessel was grounded in shallow water to prevent it sinking, but has now been refloated and tugs are, are taking it into port. But we said at the time that we thought there would be some incidents from that storm or that there would be claims that these mines have been free-floating for a while. So I think there'll be more of this to come. Uh, a couple more for me before I turn to the boys. Female Ukrainian soldiers will wear specialist body armour uh, for the first time after Ukraine's Defence Ministry, Ministry has approved the military's first such vest designed specifically for women. Only men are conscripted into the Ukrainian armed forces, but more than 62,000 women serve voluntarily, 5,000 of whom are in active combat roles. So this new body armour is more, more curved, has narrower shoulders, and is, uh, is, I say, designed specifically for the female frame. I mention it because we, we've gone through the similar, similar sort of process here in the UK, I mean, this stuff's not, not comfortable at the best of times. It's designed to stop high-velocity rounds. So, you know, it, it, that is its primary purpose. But also, you, you then have to 
fight in it and be comfortable in it such that you know ditch it all the time and hence if it's if it is uncomfortable and not if it doesn't fit you directly or as good as possible and if it's made for you know a, a different body shape it, it can be extremely uncomfortable so the british military have just gone through this process of having body armor specifically for the female frame others are doing likewise it is overdue it has to happen and it's good to see that it's happening now for for ukraine um two russian men have been imprisoned by a Moscow court for reciting poems opposing the war in Ukraine. So this happened this morning, or the news happened this morning. Archom Kamardin, who's 33 years old, he was sentenced to seven years. And Yegor Stovba, 23, he got five years and six months on counts of inciting hatred and calling for activities threatening state security. So the determination, as I said, was this morning. It was met with cries of shame from supporters in the courtroom. And this is according to the AFP, Agence France Press, the journalist who was at the hearing. You know, I mean, have a look online. Nothing says that you are a strong and self-confident state like locking people up for reading poems, in my opinion. So that's a good move. Uh, and then just finally from me, uh, Sergei Lavrov. Yeah, OK, go on then, let's see what he has to say. The West has agreed a peace formula to end the war in Ukraine at a secret summit about 10 days ago, he said. He was having an interview, in an interview with a state media, Russian state media. He said that this so-called secret peace formula was proposed by President Zelensky. It's going to be discussed by the, the G7. I mean, I work from the principle that anything the Kremlin or any of its cronies says is a lie, and then I work backwards from there to see what the purpose of that that lie was. Usually it's just to deflect criticism from their own crimes or military failings. I think in this case, as I've said before, it's part of a wider strategy, this idea, this strategy to just to see whose heads turn in the external support, international support for Ukraine. You know, Russia starts talking about they're open to negotiations or Zelensky's looking for a way out. He's put this secret formula just to see who, where across Europe, in the press, in the political arena, go, oh, oh well, let's have, a, let's have a listen. Let's see what he's got to say. I mean, it's utter hogwash. I don't believe a word what uh, Sergei Lavrov says. It's all part of their of their strategy to try and try and put the political pressure on the um, external support for Ukraine, trying to cleave those less committed away from uh, from Kiev. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to work. Anyway, that's enough of the updates. Um, Joe, really interested to hear from you. You've got, a, you've got a couple of bits and pieces to talk about. And then I'd like to ask you, when you pause for breath, let me know. I would like to ask you a question about Jacques Delors. But uh, welcome, welcome, Joe. Great to have you. Hi, folks. Yeah, let's start with an interview with Dimitro Kaleba uh, and the Kiev Independent. So this is... Uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, and he has basically come out and said, look, Europe doesn't know how to fight wars. And it was in a swipe at Europe's basically inability or failure to ramp up weapons production, basically to arm Ukraine, but also to replenish stockpiles to protect itself against any like Russian aggression against NATO in the future. So he's saying, look, the production of weapons is not the most popular area of business. Unfortunately, our friends spent too much time deliberating on how and when to ramp up their production of weapons and ammunition. So his warning came as the US announced its final aid package has been agreed for this year, but also going forward as Joe Biden grapples with Congress and the Senate. But what it is, is if you dive deep, it's really Ukraine's sort of strongest criticism of Europe's inability to open up new production lines to meet the challenges of supplying Ukraine as this war drags into, into a third year uh, in February. 
So we do know deliveries of weapons to Ukraine have started to dwindle in recent months as, as sort of West of Kiev's Western backers um, fight out domestically over how much can they give you. And you have to look at sort of the EU funds being blocked by Hungary, the US having its own funds blocked. So it's it's really interesting that this criticism comes now. You have to look. Even so, Ukraine and NATO have repeatedly warned that production of ammunition and arms, especially these one five five millimeter artillery shells, must be significantly ramped up to essentially match Russia's military industrial complex, which has been on a war footing ever since Vladimir Putin ordered the invasion in February last year. So the EU has failed in its bid to ramp up uh, manufacturing of the one five five shells in a bid to deliver 1 million rounds to Ukraine by March. It delivered about 300,000 rounds to Ukraine, but they were from existing stockpiles. So this is what Kleber had to say further. I'm more concerned with the pace of development of defence industries than the arrival of new types of weapons. So look, Ukraine's getting sort of F-16s coming and stuff. But he's actually saying, look, well, these are great, and we, but we need more weapons and faster, not not just new types of technology. The industry, the defence industry in Russia, is government-owned under the conditions of an authoritarian rule and government control of industry. It's easier to grow military production. Even while enjoying the status of the most sanctioned country in the world, it's still easier to put your industry in the wartime realm and increase production. Europe clearly has an advantage in its technology. The problem and the challenge they face is scaling up that technology's production. I regret to say it. But this will not be enough if the situation doesn't change and Russia will be ahead of us. So he's essentially conceding that look, if Europe doesn't get its arse in gear, then yeah, it's going to be problems for Ukraine. Then like, I dive deeper in so a piece that's going up online soon and should be in tomorrow's newspaper. I dive deeper into what discussions have been had. So if you look, Ukraine has been having discussions about attempting to forge more joint defence production projects between its own domestic industry and industries in the West. So a senior Ukrainian source told me we definitely try to attract foreign companies in the defence sector to produce in Ukraine. What could that mean? So Britain's BA Systems announced earlier this year that it has plans to create a factory in Ukraine to produce these 105mm light artillery guns domestically. There have been reports of General Dynamics, which is a big American firm, that is planning to open a facility in western Ukraine to produce mainly 155mm shells. And as I reported uh, earlier this month, the EU is set to enhance uh, cooperation between European and Ukrainian defence firms as part of a long-term security pact that Ukraine and Brussels are currently negotiating. So back to Mr. Kleber. The solution is to create a certain level of alignment of all defence industries of the EU, the US and like-minded countries for them to work as one whole system. But he warned that attempts were being blighted by countries concerned over their intellectual property rights and national security issues. We're having an honest conversation with them. Ukraine is at stake in this debate today, or in this capacity building effort today. But what is at stake tomorrow, Mr. Kleber asks. It's their security, the security of European countries. Because if anyone believes Putin will not dare to attack a NATO country if he wins in Ukraine, that person is either naive or pursuing Russian interests in this discourse. Yeah, so it's really strong and punchy words from Dmitry Kleber, which is um, sort of incredibly interesting to hear at this time. And he is one of the guys that Ukraine has put in charge of going round and trying to forge these little defence cooperation packages, whether it be a sort of a British factory or British company opening a factory in Ukraine, American company. French companies are also looking at doing the same. So one that helps new production lines, more weapons, weapon production systems based in Ukraine, that's easier delivery times, etc. So it's all good stuff that they're trying to do, but yeah, Europe isn't reciprocating. Let's have a look at the final 
aid package from the US this year. It's worth $250 million. And in that, the US will supply air defense and artillery ammunition, rockets for the HIMAR launchers, uh, anti-armor munitions, and over 15 million rounds of ammunition. So the US Congress to date has approved around $110 billion in aid for Ukraine since Russia invaded, but has not approved any new funds since the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives from the Democrats in January this year. So the White House has constantly been warning that without any agreement, aid will run out now within days. It's previous basic. The warning is that the US has no aid beyond this $250 million and beyond the end of the year. So President Joe Biden has requested another $61 billion, but the Republicans are refusing to approve it unless there is an agreement between the Republicans and the Democrats on tighter border security along the US-Mexico frontier. And that's just a... We could, we could go into that debate, and we often do, about why... The Republicans aren't doing this. There's lots of concerns, but they're essentially using Joe Biden's sort of backing for Ukraine to as domestic leverage. And that's what's happening everywhere. And I'll stop there for now. Thanks, Joe. I want to come back to you in just a moment for you got a piece on uh, electronic warfare, I think. Let's talk about that in a moment. But before you do, Jacques Delors died th- this week, former uh, president of the European Commission. I just, I'm not an expert on Mr. Delors, nor the, that period of European history. I think if you, if you look at some of the British press, you'd, you'd think his only, <laughs> the only thing he did was have a row with Margaret Thatcher. But I think it wasn't all about us this time, and he, he did some other stuff as well. So the architect, basically, for the modern-day EU. Um, your view from Brussels, Joe, did his vision for Europe include... Um, the hard security edge that is being asked of of the EU today over the war war in Ukraine. Did he express any opinions about this war prior to his to his death? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, so Jack Delors he died yesterday at the age of ninety eight. Um, so his daughter announced that yesterday, which was obviously met with great sadness in Brussels because he is, as as you said, that he's considered the sort of founding father of the modern day EU. He oversaw what was considered the most active decade in terms of transform- transformation of the European Union uh, between 1985 and 1995. He created the modern-day single market, as we know it. The, he championed the euro single currency. He helped build the single Schengen free travel zone and the Erasmus University programme. So sort of fans of the EU and people who look at it a lot have a great deal of respect. And even Boris Johnson, he yesterday came out on, on Twitter and basically said, look, we don't, I don't agree with the direction of the EU, but you've got to look at this guy as a statesman. What an incredible guy and how successful he was in doing what he believed in. And to be fair, it wasn't really until the coronavirus pandemic and now the war in Ukraine hit the EU that the wheels of integration, European integration, really started turning again, like we saw under... Jacques Delors, and that's now under Ursula von der Leyen, who's sort of seen as maybe a modern day Jacques Delors if she can keep uh, keep going in that in that vein. So as as you said, I, I wrote a piece yesterday which was about Jacques Delors, his sort of battles with Margaret Thatcher, but we didn't really touch on Ukraine. So I'll give you a chance now to talk through what he thought of of Ukraine. He was very much of the mindset. His dad was uh, badly injured in World War One and was seen as a yeah sort of a peace lover. And Jacques Delors is very much that. He he tried to construct and saw Europe and the EU as a device to stop wars. It was a peace project after World War II, bringing sort of Germany and France and, and these sort of competing nations together to stop and end all wars in Europe. And to date, that has been, they have mini battles, but that has been largely successful in the European Union. So yeah, I was having a look at what he had said on Ukraine. And to be fair, there wasn't a great deal from himself, but he does have, and he had this started this Jack Delors 
institute, which is essentially to further European integration and come up with ideas. And he basically was promoting and saying that Europe should be doing everything that it is doing now in terms of arming Ukraine, funding Ukraine, bringing Ukraine closer to the EU. So there was recently a paper published by the Institute in November, and it was called Arsenal Europe, and it made two recommendations for protecting Ukraine in the long term. And it said Ukraine and its defence industries should rapidly be allowed to participate in the European Commission's defence industrial policies as part of Ukraine's gradual accession to the EU. So that's essentially what I was saying at the top of my piece on Labour, saying that we need to work together to basically build weapons and build security together. That's exactly what Jack Delors was thinking. And then the second recommendation, the European Peace Facility, that's that pot of money that the European Union has been using to basically pay back member states for delivering weapons to Ukraine. He said it should be able to purchase military equipment not only from partner states, but also from the armies of member states. So basically saying it should, yeah, it should be more encompassing. It should be allowed to do more rather than just reimbursing. Maybe Brussels should have more control and say, look, we Ukraine wants this. Would you sell it to us? He's very much a guy, while, yeah, while seeing Europe as a peace project, he understands that it has to, as sort of Truman did, you have to protect vulnerable nations and help help them because that's seen as the geopolitical thing to do basically you have to protect your neighborhood as much as your sort of immediate member states and that's that's what jack Delors sort of thrived on interesting fascinating thanks so much now you have an interesting electronic warfare story uh, if you could start with that please and then i think we'll go straight over to, to hamish because he will also be able to comment on this yeah thankfully i have never served in the military and pick all of this stuff up as an observer so Hamish stepped in to sort of help advise me on the piece but so I wanted to write a piece on electronic warfare which is seen as one of Russia's technological advantages in the war and so if you if you start reading about when Ukraine was being given these better bits of kit they would come in to immediately be successful but Russia would find some way of stopping them eventually so at first Ukraine noticed um GPS-guided 155mm Excalibur shells suddenly started veering off target. Rockets fired from HIMARS, which Kiev once boasted of having a scalpel-like accuracy, began missing their targets. And in some areas, they almost always missed, which was unheard of. And then the same happened to JDAM-guided bombs supplied by the US to Ukraine's Air Force. So and basically, if you then look into it, all of the weapons started falling victim to a new threat, which was Russian electronic jamming. And so across almost the entirety of the front line now, there is an invisible wall of electromagnetic pulses, essentially acting like a shield. An elaborate network of radio, infrared and radar signals are hurled into the sky over the battlefields uh, to basically give some areas unprecedented levels of protection. So, But while like the missiles and stuff and big, big heavyweight bits of kit are a problem, actually... It's now the -the off-the-shelf drones, which Ukraine has become so reliant on for reconnaissance and long-range strikes, that that is where it's really hitting. So I was speaking to one soldier who's in a 120mm mortar unit, and they regularly use the Chinese-made DJI Mavic drones uh, to spot their targets. And and he was telling me that they've always had good electronic warfare since the start of the full-scale invasion, but now it is better than us. Another person with knowledge of the front lines was telling me, look, it's getting intensive. But not, nothing high-tech, just the same Russian stuff. It's power in quantity, not quality. So that's quite interesting. And then I was listening to uh, the our friends over the Geopolitics Decanted podcast, um, and they had Andrei 
Lisevich of the Ukraine Defence Fund saying, look, it remains a major problem along the front line. And essentially, the radio frequencies used to fly drones, mainly the first-person view attack drones, um, are now being jammed quite comprehensively. There are bigger bits of kits of the um, Shipanovic Aero System, which is a, a truck that can basically jam up to six kilometers in range and they're being dotted every six miles or or sank along the front line in some areas but then other ones other russian units have sort of these things that are held on backpacks or put on more portable aerials that can be turned on when they know that drones are in the area and these drones essentially if they get hit and the the blockers work will either just fall out the sky or the say spotter drones the mavics or whatever will just hover there until they run out of battery and fall to the ground so ukraine is trying to come up with its own countermeasures it's using spectrum analyzers on the front line to work out what frequencies are being jammed and interrupted another tactic they use is to send a swarm of drones as not every frequency can be blocked but then i think we should stop there and go to hamish because he can talk through his his ideas that he imparted about why it might not be in ukraine's best interest to go for the really high-tech gear and instead have a quantitative advantage rather than qualitative yes Hi, good afternoon, guys. Very good to be with you. Sad not to have DK here, but I gather it's not officer flying weather up in the uh, Scottish Islands. I'm sure he'll be he'll be back soon. But yeah, this I think the whole electronic warfare EW side is something that perhaps we haven't focused on really until recently, where it is having an impact on operations, as Joe has said there. And there is a strange sort of dilemma or balance between quality and quantity and both have a real sort of way to play in this and with the dom you'll remember from tours in iraq and afghanistan w was almost one of the our first things that we thought about you wanted to make sure that your patrol or your your helicopter or whatever ever it was had an ew sort of bubble around it protecting it and people like the Brit, ourselves and, and the Americans are always very um, circumspect about their EW because obviously we don't want the enemy to know exactly what it is and what we're using. But certainly in Afghanistan, if your EW electronic countermeasures weren't working, you wouldn't go out. Um, it was that important. So it's taken a while, I think, to catch up. The, the two things really that, that, that Joe alluded to here, which are really important, I think, you know, dr- drones are, are the focus, I suppose, and that's the real the step up in this war that, that perhaps we haven't experienced or people like myself who spent most of my time in Iraq and Afghanistan r- really didn't get into. And you either have lots of very cheap drones, as has been described, or you go for the sort of in the UK, we have the Watchkeeper drone and Reap, the Reaper drones. The small Chinese ones are sort of $500, and there are thousands of them around. Whereas we in the British military have gone for something like Watchkeeper and Reaper, which are in the, te- you know, the, the 5 million, 10 million pounds sort of mark. But people have criticised the British for going down that way, saying, why didn't you have thousands of drones like the Ukrainians do? Well, one of the reasons is EW. So certainly Watchkeeper will have very sophisticated electronic countermeasures protection. So it will not be susceptible. And I think what is really interesting, looking at what's happening now, with a a pretty static battle, uh, the drones are so important to it. But really, 
until if there is a technological advantage that Ukraine can get. And we did talk about the essay written some weeks ago uh, by the head of the Ukraine military saying exactly what it was needed. One of it was battle winning technology. Whether the Ukrainians can develop that EW for their master in time to affect the war, say for the next six to 12 months, who knows. But we know that they're very innovative. And this use of swarms is seems to be, to me, the most effective thing to do. And if you, you've got tens of thousands of $500 drones and you're losing 50% of them, then that's not too bad. If you've only got a few sort of $10 million drones and you lose a couple of those, then that is hugely significant. But I think EW, I think we might have underestimated the Russians in this area, only because we've seen them, certainly in my area of expertise, the tanks, where they've been so terribly poor, but actually on the electronic countermeasures, that they seem to be up to it. And no doubt that that is the focus of the Ukraine, and no doubt, hopefully, the Americans or others are helping them with that. Um, so I'll stop on the, on the EW piece. Thanks, Hamish. Now, you've also written a piece with Ben Wallace, former Defence Secretary, now writes for us at The Telegraph, about the whole ULES thing, the ultra-low emission zone, vehicles that, that aren't compliant here for air quality reasons. There's a scrappage scheme and uh, there was some uh, a recent spat about whether or not they could be sent out to Ukraine, gifted to, to Ukraine, which, um, I mean, it was a bit of both. It was that the London mayor and central government both blaming each other. It was in the gift of central government to change this policy and allow these vehicles to be sent. Having said that, the, the, the London mayor could have and should have been a bit more proactive in challenging that, that rule. I think it's, got, it's moved on from there. But Hamish, what were you saying in this piece with Ben Wallace? Yes, and this is uh, unfortunately this is more, I think, a political piece than reality. And, and you've described very well what 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 the sort of scheme was. I think the the idea was, uh, uh, I think, as I tone it in the article, all these Chelsea tractors that are used to take the the great and good shopping in Knightsbridge this year could perhaps be better used uh, on the front lines in Ukraine uh, next year. Um, and there is a practical reason where these vehicles will be really useful. Um, we know that a lot of Ukraine soldiers are going to and from the front to the contact points in their own vehicles. The weather's rubbish at the moment. And actually, uh, an old Land Rover w- w- will do very well. Also, on the sort of logistic support side, rather than relying on big, big trucks and vehicles that can be taken out by Russian drones, Lots of smaller vehicles are helpful. And the fact that there's no real shortage of fuel in the country. Yeah, a lot of these old Toyotas um, and Land Rovers are pretty easy to maintain. Um, and, and also they can be used, as we've seen already, as uh, putting 50 cal machine guns on them as technicals uh, and moving them around. So there is a real practicality behind it. I would say that th- this is not a new project per se. Ben has been supporting it and obviously with his weight behind it hopefully we'll get traction. I understand the Ministry of Defence are now taking this on and Grant Chaps is is dealing with it to try and make sure these things do get moved as quickly as possible. The actual details behind it I can't really talk too much about on on these means as it will but but others have been doing this and in particular uh, a, a friend of yours and mine, Dom, Jim Cameron, who is the CEO of Mission Motorsport. I know that he's been getting 4x4s out to Ukraine and other people have been in touch with me as well. So there is a little bit of policy, but uh, as we write in our piece, it's within the gift of 
of Grant Shapps and also Mark Harper, the transport minister, to get this moving forward. And as, as Joe was covering earlier, and I'll just cover at the end, this support to Ukraine that seems to be waning in some areas, that there are lots of things they need. And something like this, to us, appears to be a relatively easy win. So let's hope we can get that moving and get those vehicles out there as soon as possible so they can have an impact on the war. OK, you're going to start inching towards final thoughts here. Just one one more, quite an update from me before we do final thoughts, but just something I've, I've, I've seen that it was actually around a couple of weeks ago, but I've only just seen it from uh, UK Defence Journal. It's an online media outlet focusing on defence from the UK, basically. The clue is literally in the title. They spotted something interesting. They saw that Britain's MOD has put out a request for information for advanced underwater force protection solutions. So this uh, this notice came out about 10 days ago. The uh, request for information says the Royal Navy is seeking information on current and future underwater force protection capabilities, including portable or fixed sonar systems, other find capabilities, anti-diver and counter-UUV capabilities. UUV, I'm guessing, is un- uninhabited underwater vehicle, basically a drone, underwater drones. It says they're looking for options of deployable underwater protection systems which can be deployed on board Royal Navy vessels both here and overseas. These systems should be able to detect and track all underwater contacts ranging from larger targets such as big drones to smaller targets such as small drones, remotely operated vehicles and divers. So I think the difference there, remotely operated vehicles, I guess, must still be tethered to the ship or port. And then it should be they should be able to operate with accuracy within busy harbour and anchorage environments which have a high traffic density. Uh, systems should be person portable, simple user interface, blah, blah, blah. Response is due by the 5th of January. So they're not hanging about on this. I think this is quite an interesting quite an interesting development looking at how to protect and find stuff in, as I say, in busy, busy harbour areas and elsewhere. So we'll keep our eye on that and any responses to it. But it just shows how the underwater, uh, the subsurface environment is... is if if eyes were taken away from it for a while, then it shouldn't have been. But but it very much now the focus is back on there, and the, the launch of RFA Proteus, the new the Navy's new ship in in October, or the commissioning of uh, dedication of RFA Proteus, which is a launch pad for and a test bed for all this kind of stuff, shows exactly how serious they're taking it. I'll move on to final thoughts. I know Hamish, we're going to lose you shortly, so uh, Hamish, let's go to you first, please, for your final thoughts. Yes, thanks very much for that. I think just looking at where we are at the moment, things are very static on the front. But on the all-arms side, the ability to manoeuvre, after a year of training, I'm pretty confident that hopefully Ukraine's getting into good place. Uh, The F-16s will start arriving very, very soon if they haven't arrived already, which I think is a major part to that. We know the Russians have difficulty fighting at night and also the difficulty to manoeuvre. So if Ukraine can start manoeuvring in the spring, all the best for that. We know the oligarchs are getting really quite upset. I think there was a piece in the paper today about a party of oligarchs being harangued by Putin and getting in a pretty sorry state for that. And we're seeing freedom of manoeuvre in the Black Sea, as, as you covered yesterday, I think. So so although things are looking very desperate with the weather and everything else in Ukraine and problems with support, continued support, if we can keep giving them that ammunition um, and they can start manoeuvring, then I think 
2024 will be better than 2023. And the final bit, which has gone quite quietly into the night, is that it, Sweden is is now on the verge of joining NATO after the Turkish government voted, I think, yesterday to allow that to proceed. So, yeah, finishing on a positive note. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Hamish. Uh, Joe, I'll give you the last thought in a, in a moment. My final thought would be, uh, well, back on kind of Jacques Delors, really. I mean, I, I didn't know a huge amount about his politics, um, but I just, it, it, the guy had a vision and he was pragmatic enough to see it through and make uh, compromises where necessary. And I just wonder where the statesmen, the statespeople, whoever you are, whatever the term is, are today in this in this war. And so as we move into 2024, I'm really looking for an answers on a postcard. Where do we find the person um, who's going to step up with that vision for, for what what happens here and how... Europe and the world galvanises itself and organises itself and pushes back here. There's a lot of mealy mouth kind of hand-wringing going on, but I want to see a statesperson uh, striding the world stage with a vision and the energy and the pragmatism to see it through, such as as Jacques Delors. So uh, let me know where I can find such an individual. And it certainly ain't somebody in Russia who's scared of people reading poems. So, um, yeah, let me know where I can look for the big people to... uh, to step up in 2024. Joe, over to you for the final, final thoughts. Yep, uh, just a shout out to regular listener and often Twitter commenter Clive Hamilton, who is suggesting that once Ukraine gets the F-16, it's uh, the harm missile system, which they have been using on their Soviet legacy planes, will have more success because the avionics will talk properly. We should actually do a bigger deep dive into that, Clive. So no, thanks. That's a, a good We should look at what the F-16 will be able to do once it's... Uh, in Ukraine, hopefully next year at some point, the first batch of Ukrainian pilots uh, qualified their language courses in the UK recently and are off to Denmark to start training. But then my other point is, and it's it's a bit of a bugbear with the British government, with the West, if, if the government is arguing with the London mayor over sending four by fours or whatever, what have we hit a new low in our support for Ukraine at that point? Yes, these things are very useful to Ukrainian soldiers, but I'm sure they would prefer new bits of kit or more genuinely armoured vehicles, more tanks maybe. Is there something else we can give them other than arguing about (laughs) basically what is a political spat in a non-political arena between the Labour and Conservative parties? While these things are greatly useful, we should stop politicking and actually get laser-sighted vision again on what we need to be doing to Ukraine, what we can do to make a difference to them. And that's, yeah, that's my thought. We should do less politics and more think about the bigger picture of saving people's lives. Thanks, Joe and Hamish. Yesterday, we heard an interview conducted by my colleague David with Dr. Daria Mattingly on the Holodomor, the Soviet-made famine that killed millions of Ukrainians in the 1930s. Today, David speaks to Ukrainian activist and campaigner Yulia Timoshenko, who shared her own family stories of the Holodomor. Here's David and Yulia. Yulia, thank you so much for your time. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are at the moment? Hi, my name is Julia, Julia Demoshenko, not related to any politicians that you might know from Ukraine. I'm 24 years old and I'm originally from Kiev region, from a small village called Zavorichi. And I currently live in Kiev, work for a company called St. Javelin and also do some media work for Ukrainian media, media Ukrainer. Thank you so much, Julia. Listeners will have heard my interview with Dr. Daria Massingly about the Holodomor, giving us a sort of historical 
deep dive, an account of what happened in the late 1920s, early 1930s in Ukraine. Julia, can we start by asking, how did you learn about the Holodomor in Ukraine in your schooling? How does it, how is it taught and when does it come up? What, what age are you? I think there is, uh, now reflecting, I can see that there is always like this subconscious knowledge that I had about it. And by subconscious, I mean that something that I wasn't like aware that it was Holodomor, but I think almost every single Ukrainian has, uh, especially those who grew up in villages like I did, has some sort of history with like the grandmas feeding them, overfeeding them, having really strict rules of like, how do you treat food on the table? Like, how do you treat bread specifically? Like bread being something like sacred and grandma and grandparents making comments such as like, you need to gain a few kilograms to be able to do work, to be strong. Like, what does that mean? So there was always that knowledge that I sort of started carrying with myself because I grew up with my grandma as well. And in school, I think when it started coming up, I think for me, it was almost like coinciding with uh, the history of Ukraine, recognizing it as genocide, which I think was around 2005, six. I definitely remember that it was it was an initiative of uh, President Yushchenko, who felt very, very strongly about uncovering that history that was sort of hidden for decades. And uh, I also started learning about it, I think, around the same time when I was just in primary school, because they started having this commemoration days in schools. And there was actually initiatives from like teachers and from the history um, teachers specifically to sort of like tell about the story. And it sounded like, I mean, horrific. I remember even seeing some sort of movies or some archival footage of people who starved to death, like their bodies being thrown on a cart and sort of just taken away to put in like a big dump. And it all always like horrified me. But then when I started like asking questions back home, that's when my family started talking about what was our family's experience with it and what it meant to my great grandma and uh, then my grandparents as well, because uh, some of them were already born from my dad's side. I think what really stuck with me, and I think like, I don't remember when I learned this, but I do remember that as that was in a conversation with my dad and his sister, my aunt, uh, talking about just the history of Holodomor and specifically the story of my uh, great grandma. Her name is Ulyana. Uh, she, uh, she's my paternal uh, great grandma. And how she basically was coming up with the most creative ways of uh, surviving during the famine from just trading some clothes, the, the embroidery that she would make to then like make some money to then travel or walk to Kiev by food, which is like over 40 kilometers from the village where I live to just buy a little bit of food and bring back to her children. Because if you dive deeper in the history of Holodomor, it's actually, it's been the case that a bunch of villagers, like the peasants, would come to the city in search for food, and a lot of people would actually die there on the street from starvation, because the situation in the countryside was so dire, was so horrible, that people didn't know how to survive, and they went to cities because they knew that cities still had some food remaining, and basically the situation there was relatively okay. But then something that really, really shocked me as a child, and I think stayed with me forever, 
is the story of how when she she was searching for food in Kiev, I think, and somehow she met like a guy who I think tricked her, like telling her that she, he's going to bring her to this like, I don't know, or like secret market or maybe like secret storage of some food and like basically give it to her. And uh, when she got into an apartment or like some sort of space, uh, there was a guy sitting at the table with like a list, like marking something off. She was put in front of him as if like, like as if she's a model, like he needs to look around at her. And he looked at her and just said, no, she's not going to like be a good fit. She's too thin. And she, he dismissed her. And that was the moment when, when she realized that she was about to be slaughtered for meat because the cases of cannibalism were huge, but also the mafia that was profiting of that, like killing people and selling people's meat in the market for cheap was insane, was very big. It's actually, it's also like very, very dark side of Holodomor. Like there, there are mothers eating their babies which is also something that you can look uh, and learn from like the history and like archives and from family history of a lot of people. Luckily in my family, I, I don't know if that was the case. Like I've never learned about something like that, but this specific case of my grandma almost being slaughtered and sold as meat on the market, I think illustrated all horror, like just that one small story and how she survived just because she was very skinny and literally that if she wouldn't survive that moment, maybe I would have never been born. And uh, her because her uh, her child, my grandfather, he would have probably died with having like no parents. And um, yeah, I think that kind of illustrated the horror for me. But as well in my family, my dad, and I know that his uh, father was like that. I've never met my grandfather from my dad. They would always be very, very open about saying who's the perpetrator of that was always saying that it was Moscow's policy. It was Russia. It was the Bolsheviks who came to, to, to take away the food that they stood behind there as a kid. When I was asking like, why, like it didn't make sense to me. Like nothing makes sense to you as a kid. Like why do people do wars? Why do they kill each other? Uh, why do they take each other's food? I think the response that I got was very vague of something like, Oh, they just didn't want Ukraine to be Ukraine or they just didn't like the Ukrainian peasants specifically because that was the place where Ukrainian culture continued to live. Like when the cities were still like russified and a lot of Ukrainian elites, they tried to fit in and, and, and be somebody in the empire. So they sort of embraced the Russian culture, Russian language, everything in the villages across Ukraine. That wasn't the case. People were still speaking Ukrainian. People were uh, singing Ukrainian songs, songs, uh, just preserving the traditions and everything. And the most important, they also were preserving their land and didn't want to take to give their land to the Bolsheviks. And those who resisted collectivization obviously would be either killed or like sent away, or others just like silently suffered from the famine. And yeah, this kind of story really, really impacted me forever. And I think that was just the it was like a first memory of this like generational trauma because I almost like imagined myself in her shoes. And it's very funny because actually Ulyana and Yulia, which is like my Ukrainian name, it's like similar names. And a lot of people tell me that like I look like her, uh, that I have like her face shape and structure. And I don't know, I just like felt this kind of connection to her, which is it's hard to explain, realizing that she as a woman had to carry 
this burden and to come up with all of these ways and like survive the most horrific things just to feed her children and keep her family alive is just shocking to me when I understand why it's that, why it's because, I mean, um, why that was the case and who, who was behind that. And I look at like my life right now, I'm like, wow, the history is really not that different today. How did your grandmother survive? And what did she go on to do afterwards? You've told almost the most tragic, the most difficult part of her story, but I assume there's, there's maybe more to it as well. Well, I know that uh, there were so many different stories and uh, something that I've also learned through uh, my social media when I shared the story and a bunch of other um, Ukrainians started sharing their stories and what they know about their family survival, that it was a lot of almost like creative approach to food. In a, I think that's a, that's a nice way to put it. Like the people were cooking from the leaves, people were cooking from any kind of like nutshells. People were using leather and leather belts to cook soup because there was a little bit of whatever, like, I don't know, protein there. Like, so I think the story of kind of like soup that is just water and basically maybe one leaf being like a meal is very real. I even, I don't remember specifically, but I remember my, my grandma from my mom's side. So a different sort of family. Like she, she always had like a, some specific word to describe this kind of like soup that is just basically water and nothing. Um, I just can't remember it right now, but I remember in childhood, she would always like tell me that I should, whenever I take myself like a bowl of soup, that I should put more of like potatoes and meat and stuff. So I don't just eat this like water. And uh, I know a lot of people were hiding food from the Bolsheviks, including my family. I think they had some sort of like dugouts where they hid some food. So like some potatoes and uh, stuff like that. I know specifically something very interesting because I've talked to also elderly um, neighbors in my village. I've actually did like a small like research myself in 2021 or 2022, I think 2022, when I interviewed like very elderly um, neighbors, like over 80, maybe like close to 90. And I talked to them about this. Um, they said something very interesting that when the local administration of the village, which was basically reporting to the to, to Kiev Soviet administration and then Moscow, when they had to report like the cases of death, they would always hide that it was the case that the reason was famine. They would always have to come up with some other, uh, you know, reason for death, like tuberculosis, I don't know, like some other like disease, but they would never report that it was hunger. Even though the person, like the woman who was working in that um, local administration her cousins died because of hunger, but she still didn't report that was the case. Like she still like used some other cover up for that. So, what would happen if they did report to it with the real cause? It's a part of the bigger kind of like the secret behind this, and why I think we're just starting to reflect on Holodomor and, and on the collective trauma of it. That you couldn't really talk about that there was famine or hunger or that people were dying from hunger. You could get imprisoned or killed uh, for worse or sent away with your family in a way whenever we even like think about ukrainians right now i think a, lot, a large percentage of those ukrainians alive today are alive because their grandparents their parents stayed quiet at some point uh, because those who didn't didn't really end up in a good place yeah like you just couldn't 
report the truth, you couldn't talk about it. And um, a lot of survivors of Holodomor, they actually still like afraid to fully talk about it because they know what would be the consequences. And I think my grandpa actually told me a story about the village that somebody mentioned in the village on this like square uh, where there was like one store or used to be a store. Uh, somebody said out loud that people are dying from hunger in front of like a group of people. And then that person disappeared and nobody have ever heard what happened to that person. So that was the situation and like this kind of the cover up that Stalin tried to do and uh, the denial of what was happening. I think like very, very conscious denial was so like strict that uh, people just couldn't even admit that it was on such a big scale as it was. All the people were dying in mass and yeah, it was horrific. I actually learned something new from about my family. So this story that I told you about my great grandma, that's from my paternal side and then my maternal side I've just like this year I think interviewed my grandma and talked a little bit more about her father which is my great-grandfather and that side of the family because I realized that I know way less uh, because actually I think that's very interesting because like one side of my family which is paternal was always very critical of Russia I would say almost like hateful of Russia. And that's where I got, like, I think a lot of my knowledge about Russian imperialism and colonialism, because I, I always like, heard about this from my dad's side. And then my mom's side is actually was uh, a part of the communist party of Ukraine and a part of that sort of apparatus that kept the Soviet Union running. Like, so my grandfather, he was actually in the party and they would never talk about something like this to me. I've never really learned about the stories of Holodomor and how it impacted their families up until this year when, when I interviewed my grandma about her like ancestors because I just like wanted to build my family tree. And uh, she told me that her father was one of the two kids kids that survived in the family of 10 kids. So the rest died during Holodomor. Um so that is, was also very interesting to realize that, like, what was the probability of him surviving versus somebody else? Um, and uh, just thinking about this for, like, all of us, I think Ukrainians is pretty dramatic because while, like, your ancestors up in the line survive something horrific as Holodomor, then uh, you have some sort of form of, peaceful occupation under Russia, under Soviet Union. Then we try again to be free. And you think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the first generation of Ukrainians who don't really suffer from the Russian oppression. And then 2022, when my family was actually under occupation in March of 2022, like they spent uh, four weeks there. And there were also cases of Russian soldiers torturing, shooting people, killing. So it's for me, it's a miracle that my my dad and my grandfather, who was actually being targeted, he was being shot at from a Russian machine gun at a distance, but they missed. It's a, it's a miracle that, that they survived. And then when we had this Holodomor commemoration day, the same morning, I think Russian drone fell somewhere in my district. And I also heard like a very, very loud impact. So you're like, wow, like, like today we're talk talking about all of these stories of survival, but... Am I also like a survivor of another attempt, another attack? So um, 
just wrapping your head around something like this is very complex and very difficult and also heavy. Have your elderly relatives spoken about the experience of being targeted by the Holodomor, by um, Bolshevik Russian policies in, in their youth, and then also to find themselves on the front lines and under occupation now again at the sort of at the other end of their lifetime? I think they don't really like we don't have like very deep conversation about like connecting it historically with anybody in my family apart from my dad. That's the person that I've learned all of this from, most of this from. And um, I think my grandparents, they still sometimes like reminisce their youth in Soviet Union because honestly for them, it was like the best time of their life because they didn't know better. They do tell me like stories about how difficult their childhood was that like they basically didn't, even post Holodomor, like there was still the Second World War and there was also like hunger and famine after that because the economic situation was so difficult. So their situation like in childhood wasn't that much better. But then they didn't really, like my grandparents have never traveled abroad in outside of Ukraine. So they really don't know what's better. But then when they were, when they were sitting under like Russian bombs and missiles and artillery in March of 2022, I didn't really know what like was crossing their mind. I know that my grandfather specifically said that he has never like thought that Russia will go on the full scale invasion. He actually didn't believe me in the first days when I told him that there are like Russian tanks literally approaching Kiev. He was like, you, you're insane. You're lying. And I'm like, no. But then he saw it with his own eyes and like he's recognizing right now that he was wrong. We've had a lot of conversation because technically like the land was taken away or like even even though like my family was able to preserve a little bit of, of land, but they still had to basically spend most of their time working at the collective farm, getting little to no compensation. I don't know if you've heard about the law of like three stems of grain that basically you just get paid in something with the amount of grain that's not even enough to like film a palm of your hand. Definitely not enough to feed your children or yourself. And I'm thinking always about how if not this collectivization, if not the the confiscation of land, uh, cattle, resources from the Ukrainian peasants from my ancestors like would we have a completely different life right now because that generational wealth which like when i say generational wealth it's not even like wealth it's just like a little bit of stuff that you accumulate throughout many generations how much it would like probably change my childhood and my life right now and like my parents probably would be a little bit well off than they are right now if they even had something to start at because they basically had to start at like zero every time so i i know that my i think like the reason why both of my grandparents from my dad's side died before i was born uh, is because their health was completely destroyed by the amount of work they were doing on the collective farms especially my grandma who also had to do all the female kind of real labor around the house apart from working at the collective farm. And I think that's why my grandfather as well always been very, very resentful towards Bolsheviks for taking away and not letting him just do his own stuff at his own land. I know this is a big question, but what do you think the impact on the people, the culture has been 
in this atmosphere of, as you've sort of described it, like people don't want to talk about it. Sometimes people are scared of talking about it. It sits in a long line of different acts of oppression and colonialism. So that silence is in some ways quite scary and quite chilling. What, what impact do you think that silence has had on people? I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge impact on Ukraine, on Russia as well, because Russia has never recognized or admitted Holodomor or their crimes. They have never sort of even like looked at it at something like, oh, maybe we should have not done it. And I think that's the biggest problem with Russia. If, if we see countries like Germany that were able to reflect on their dark, dark history and on something that their ancestors have done uh, to other people and um, really engrave that history and accountability for that history into the minds of the society, for Russia, it's not the case. When you speak with any Russian, they would, even those who consider themselves liberal, they usually minimize the scale of Holodomor, they minimize the trauma, and most importantly, they completely deny that, that it was targeted specifically at Ukraine, or it was targeted on the basis of like national identity and towards those parts of USSR that were keeping their own culture, because Kazakhstan also had very, very strong famine, but it was kind of similar case of Kazakh people in the rural areas being conservationists of their own culture. So that's something that obviously Moscow didn't like, the Kremlin didn't like. And I think that had a huge impact on Ukraine and how we see ourselves as a nation and our national memory. It's a collective trauma that people kept silent about and they completely buried it down inside and never really worked through. They kept it with themselves. So it mani it manifests in many different ways from like, as I explained, from how my grandparents talk about food, from how they also see, to how they also see like power and how much they can actually talk to power. Like they, because they were taught that you cannot even say anything against obviously the ruling party, the communist party, but you can't even say what you're struggling with. They also try to tell me, like, for example, they've, they've told me multiple times that, like, you're being too political. You should not complain about this. You should not say that. You should always be grateful. And those might be very, like, subtle ways in a way it manifests, but to, all together it creates a very, very, I think, specific environment in which you grew up. And for Ukraine as well, not being able to fully reflect on the trauma, but also for the world also not really knowing about the Holodomor or recognizing it as genocide. Like, that's why I think a lot of people were surprised that Russia invaded Ukraine. That's why a lot of people were shocked by the horrors that Russia was doing to Ukrainians because they never learned about things like the Holodomor and other chapters of history that would probably teach them that this is not anything super new. Maybe the method's a little bit different, but it's the same pattern of the same oppression. So... I think learning about it and specifically educating the world about the Holodomor is crucial for us as well to explain that if we don't stop Russia now, it will just continue repeating again and again. And I think for me, it's actually something that I've thought the most on the first day of the invasion. I think on the 24th, as I was trying to comprehend everything that was happening as I was here in my apartment where I'm sitting right now, and I was reading the news and I've learned about tanks literally crossing over the border on north of Ukraine and driving to Kyiv. I felt, I think, the pain from 
the generations before me to now to like my own pain it felt like all of that grief all of that rage and anger just passed through me in like some second or moment and I became completely like I don't know like hysterical I was like crying on my floor and just asking myself why why is this like never stopping and it was incredibly painful and I think it's because I've learned about all of this history of my family and I knew that this is technically nothing completely new for us. Julia, what will you do with the stories you've heard, the knowledge you've learned about your family and about what their village went through? Um, That's a very good question. (laughs) Maybe one day I'll write a book, I don't know. But I'll definitely uh, pass them, I think, to my children. I wanted to say my, my children, you know, like I'm not sure if I ever want children, but whenever I think about how much my ancestors had to go through just so I would be alive that's almost like a selfish thing of like should I end my sort of bloodline right now by choice or should I not so that's a very different topic but I would definitely think if I have children I would pass to them all of this information so they also know and learn this history Uh, obviously I use these stories to educate people online with all the online activism and work that I do, because I think uh, they are crucial to make people understand that Russia doesn't want peace. It wants complete destruction and erasure of Ukrainian nation and of Ukraine as such. And uh, I also really, really want to, I think, interview more people in my village and learn more about my whole family tree, because I'm sure that there is a lot of interesting stories there. And it's something that I wanted to do for a while. I just like didn't have time. But the more I think about this, the more I have these kind of conversations, the more I feel motivated to do it. Well, any publishers listening, do get in touch. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is really important to say? I think the only thing is just that yesterday I learned about, or two days ago I've learned about uh, my friend's grandfather's house being destroyed in Kupyansk by a Russian missile. And how it relates to Holodomor. Her grandfather survived six to seven months under Russian occupation in Kharkiv region last year. He was liberated and she wrote a little Instagram post about him because she put up a fundraiser in his name for his home to be rebuilt. And she was saying how when the Ukrainian army found him, when they were liberating the village, he was sitting in his cellar and eating cold food and like raw vegetables because there was just like nothing, not much left. And whenever I hear stories like this, I hear how people are surviving right now in the occupied areas. I think all of that is very, very similar to the same that our great-grandparents went through. So Russia is still using hunger, grain as well from Ukraine as a way to oppress Ukraine and try to bend it down. So it's literally just the same history repeating itself. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. A few weeks ago, we asked you to send in your thoughts and reflections as well as where you were listening from. Thanks to everyone who filled up the Telegraph email inbox with your kind words. Here is a short selection. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. G'day, I'm Marlon from Ballarat in Australia. I think this full-scale invasion shows Russia as an incredibly bad actor on the world stage that seeks to undermine so many principles that we hold dearly here in the West. 
And thanks for your podcast that does, in its way, draw attention to the plight of the Ukrainian people. And it feels like another small part of the the broader struggle against um, Russian aggression. Thanks for all your hard work. Slava Rikonia and um, Merry Christmas. Good day, Team Telegraph. Uh, This is Matt from southwestern Ontario. Uh, I'm a journalist and a farmer. I've been more or less listening to the podcast since the beginning. I think your your coverage is second to none. Uh, really, really appreciate the analysis and, and the occasional comic relief as well, of course, especially from the tankies. It's really helped keep me informed on everything that's going on and really also hearing a lot of the stories and, and of Ukrainians and what they're dealing with, what they're going through, uh, both in their home country and abroad, trying to share some of their stories myself when I can um, and just share awareness in general. Thanks very much for what you do. Uh, us free people have to stick together and Slava Ukraine. Hello to everyone on the Ukraine The Latest team and to each and everyone of the community of the pod. My name is Michal, I'm from Poland and I'm a dedicated listener of yours. I've been listening to the podcast since May 2022 and your work has quickly become one of, if not, my most preferred coverage of the war in Ukraine. The reasons for that are simple. I have friends who are currently in Ukraine and about whom I constantly think about, as well as your professionalism and the guests who always provide very interesting insights. I want to thank everyone on the Ukraine The Latest team and keep up the great and very important work. And finally, as a soldier of the Polish Armed Forces, I would like to send my sincerest regards to Dom, Hamish, as well as the brave servicemen and women of the Ukrainian Armed Forces and all of our NATO allies. Thank you for your service, and I'm sure we will prevail. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We're also doing the same for what is unfolding in the Middle East. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.